Yeah, so the API aggregate was kind of really a, a term of convenience, like, oh, Asians and Pacific Islanders are in the same region-ish of the world. And so it quite, what literally was a measure of convenience became just culturally what has been used overall throughout the United States. And it has been very damaging. It really masks a lot of the issues that Pacific Islanders face that is very much not in line with what some of our East Asian American communities are, some of them are thriving, right? Um, not to say that they're not struggling with their own thing. Like when it comes to the stop API hate, this is an Asian American issue. This is not affecting Pacific Islanders necessarily. So in a lot of ways, the API aggregate has been very harmful. It's directed a lot of funding to Asian American nonprofits. Because there's just more representation. There's just more representation, and, they, and there's a more institutional know-how. So if you throw money at a, a group, <clears> it's gonna, <throat> most of it's going to land within the Asian American community. Yeah, okay. especially if they throw on API. We're so excited to be sitting here talking um, with Toka, who was we were in residency with at the Seattle Residency Project. This is a really special relationship because we got to spend six months, some in person, a lot online because of COVID. Um, so we'll let you introduce yourself. Shotofa, Connor and L. My name is Vaeomatoka Kenneth Liwenvalu. You knew me as Toka, and that's of course um, the name I introduced myself as to everyone. I'm a former higher education professional. I worked uh, 10 years at the University of Washington. And as much as I loved it there, for the time that I was there, uh, my soul was calling me to something else. And it really was spurred on by after my mom's passing in 2017. And after having left uh, the University of Washington a couple of years after that in 2019, and really kind of um, trusting my jump um, your opportunity came along, and that's how I was fortunate to really come and uh, find and have this great relationship with the two of you. So I, I really, again, thankful for the opportunity to be here with you, with you folks. I, I currently work as Communications and Pacifica Arts Development Director at the Pacific Islander Community Association of Washington, and I'm also an artist. And so it's uh, it's been an amazing ride so far, and COVID sucks still. <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, you know, it, we're, we're making it happen. And again, being here in person with you all is like super amazing. Yeah, and I we know. are so excited to be able to talk with you today. And thanks for your time. Thanks for being with us. Okay, so we're doing this series. We did This Land is My Land. Now we're doing This Land is Your Land. And we're kind of expanding the conversation around, you know, originally, like, what does it mean to have uh, borders, ownership, and then expanding into This Land is Your Land is that you know, I, I really believe in like community and living open-handed, but what happens when there's certain people that are, I'll use an example of women, oftentimes, and these are generalizations, um, women will freely give of their time, right? So if that is a value you have of like, I wanna like freely give of my time, but what happens when I'm freely giving of my time to a man who's not gonna freely give of that? There's no mutuality. Mm -hmm. And so that's just like one example of a power differential, right? And so what do you do then? You say, well, I'm not gonna give my time because you're not giving your time. And then you go against the way that you want and desire mm -hmm. the community. Right. And so I see this a lot on, on multiple different levels. And so when we're talking about ownership and borders and lines, what does it mean to have permeable boundaries? And then how do you really talk about the relational aspect of it. Like, you know, if you fought so hard to get a seat at the table and then you want to change the table so that everyone's welcome, most likely you're going to kick back out. Yeah. 
And so um, how do we engage that? And so one of the things I've been really curious to ask you in particular is this idea on ownership, because all the conversations we've been having is like who owns, who has the right to own, how do we hold that? But I'm really curious about like, does any human being have the right to own anything? And it's very specifically and legally handled in a certain way in the United States. Yeah. Um, and so I'm really curious how ownership is handled and talked about, both within the in Tonga, but also like in the Tongan community within the United States. I do have to be careful. Well, not a lot. Be careful is the right word. But but I've I've lived here in the United States since '97, right? So my my sense of who Tonga is and what it what it is today is probably very skewed. That said, um, I know Tonga's history about around ownership was very much influenced by the, the, the European expansion in powers. Um, the chief who did unite all of our islands, which is about 170 different um, islands in our archipelago that makes up the kingdom, quote unquote, of Tonga. Um, the chief who dominated and kind of like unified us all saw that coming down the road. He, he, he saw, he knew the, that white people would come in there. They're not gonna stop coming. And the best, and the, the, the thing they, were, they constantly asked him about was just setting up establishments, uh, a church here, a church there. Um, and that takes up land. So he knew right off the bat that if I don't do something to kind of uh, really protect um, my people's place in, the, in their own country, then, then what, what is there left for us here? So, so what he did was he instituted a set of laws, which is what is now the, the constitutional monarchy of Tonga, that you have to be Tongan to own land in Tonga. So I think even the, the, the entire uh, notion of ownership was very much spurred by, as a response to expansion that he saw coming and could, could just not have us live in our own, in, in, in the country, right? To the best of your knowledge, yeah. prior to that, did people own land? Um, the land, from my understanding, was taken care of by chiefs. In those days, pre-Christian Tonga was very much, um, was the chiefs were very clan-based. So certain clans were very powerful, so they had huge clans, and they, it was, they would have the entire island. And so it would, it would look like they were kings, but literally they were, you know, like rather chiefs. And so it was always the understanding that the land provided when you take care of the land. Right? And so, um, and humans will fight each other. So chiefs will always warring at each, with each other. Um, but of course there's protocol there because you know, I don't know, this is side, side information, but basically before any battle in pre-Christian Tonga, there's a period where you walk to the other side and say farewell to your cousin who's fighting on the other side. And you're literally crying. You come back, and then you go at it oh and kill each other, yeah. <laughs> like civilized people. But anyways, um, yeah, like I said, the, the sense is that the land takes care takes care of you when you take care of the land, and um, it provides you with food. If you know a good piece of land is fertile and you take care of it, it'll in turn take care of you for generations. So. 
what about, okay, so one of the things I love talking about is water, and that's why it's so great that we met out here. Yeah. Um, I love living on the lake, and even like, we're sitting on the stock where there's, you can hear a lot of water because it sounds like you're in a boat because it's over. And we're going to turn that water down. We're, the water that we are going to turn down later. Um, but I think what's really interesting is when you talk about like all the islands and how, what's the interaction of water and ownership and land? Because when we think about owning land, people think about land. Right. And this is something I think about often is like how far ownership extends into the water or even like within indigenous rights within the US. I'm like, some of them only extend a certain uh, feet down to the top the topsoil mm. and then you can build underneath them or you can own air over top of buildings. And some of that stuff is starting to be parsed out legally. And so what's really interesting is what happens when you have you know, in the kingdom all made up of not only land, but all the water in between. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing, like we're, we're constantly having to respond to these um, outside powers who are really trying to take up everything around us, right? And so, again, this, this notion of owning, like, well, Tonga is the land itself above um, the water. Everything below, below that is, is up for grabs. So there happens to be... Um, uh, this is just a, an example, but if there happens to be a rich iron ore underneath, like 100 feet down in Tonga, like, is that still ours or is that, I don't know, but Tonga is definitely, I think, still rather protected because of the, the constitutional laws that uh, King George kind of put in place. Uh, I know Fiji is going through some really tough things around land and access rights for indigenous Fijian people. Um, so it's, it's not the same case around all the islands as well. I feel, I really feel for that uh, with some of our other folks so, in other communities, yeah. All right, I was saying, you've talked about, like you were talking a little bit about when um, white settlers and colonizers came over and this like really beautiful thing of creating um, the kingdom to kind of protect. But what about here, stateside? So like you moved to Seattle and now you're part of Tongan American community and also yeah. Tongan community. And then what does it mean to be community in a space where you're not the dominant force? Yeah. And in you know, such a white space, place as Seattle and surrounding areas. Yeah, I think that's that's part of um, that's part of the community I think I'm, I'm, I, I like to think that I'm part of, is to trying to figure out exactly what that is, what living in the diaspora in, in, in academic terms, right? Uh, means what does it look like for us as Tongans um, who no longer have any connection to the land itself and some of us who live abroad in Australia in New Zealand in the United States there are significant communities of Tongans in San Bruno the Bay Area um, right here in Seattle the Northwest Sydney area Brisbane uh, Auckland Auckland probably has the largest Tongan community in the world probably even more than Tonga itself. Um, I probably have to get fact-checked fact on that. But, but what does it mean for us to really kind of call, call ourselves and practice what it means to be Tongan? What is our relationship to water even, right? Um, because I know the water and the words that we use for water in different contexts um, really held specific meaning. So like Moana, the word Moana is of course the vast ocean. You don't just call the water out right there, Moana. Like that's that's not necessarily Moana. That's what just. What is this water? This is more like Vayano, which is like a like a lake. It's, it's it's an enclosed body of water. So you have a different word for the water 
but you also have a word for lake. So yes. But, but you're saying like, like we would say there's water in a lake, water in the ocean, but yeah. there's actually different words for the water itself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's different contexts of types of water and how it relates to what you use it for or what it's relation to people. Um, and sometimes it's just literally the word vi, the word water and whatever it's descriptive adjective is after that. So, yeah, so like, like I said, living abroad, um, I think there's, there's a growing community of academics, Tongans, so about my age, who are now um, getting their PhDs and trying to really research what pre-Christian Tongan is about. Because there is very, still very much a, um, a notion about Tonga being a purely Christian nation. Like our flag is all about Christ. You know, we have we have the, the cross of Christ, and it's a red background that represents the blood of Christ. So it's, you know, we are everything about Tongans is very much based on Christianity, almost at the expense, actually very much at the expense of, of demonizing everything that came before Christianity. And there's um, our Tongan academics these days are really trying to uplift and really raise the fact that there was a lot of wisdom in pre-Christian Tonga. And it, it's hard for some of us to believe that our God did not commune with my ancestors before before the white man brought Christianity to Tonga, right? So there's, there's, there's a lot of in-community um, dialogue that's going to happen. It's going to be some really difficult conversations there, but I'm all for it. I think it's healthy. I have a, I have a question. In those conversations, um, is there an understanding that, like what you just said, that, that God was there and then uh, colonizers came in and called it Christianity and created the religion of Christianity? Is that kind of the thought, or is it that they that pre-Christianity different gods or different god was worshipped? I think I'm more just my own view on it, but, but there's... Because I, I very much am Catholic, I'm, I, and I, I, I practice, I'm a practicing Catholic myself, and so uh, I just find it hard that that a very Protestant arm of Christian Christianity kind of really um, demonizes who Tonga was before the Christians came, right? And I just I just don't like to think of Tongans, and, and even just people in general. Uh, I think um, it's, it's easy to kind of just demonize what human beings often do that might not be very morally in the in the light of what's good and just call that person totally uh, a bad person um, i think there's a sect of christianity that really likes to kind of demonize and separate the good the saved from the unsaved and i think it's that same mentality that could really um, damage uh, when it's time to try and really research about who we were um, back in those days especially before christian thought I think that the idea is to really kind of think about what can we learn from who we were in those days, uh, particularly about the land as it, as Tonga continues to get more and more populous, there are uh, more folks moving back to the islands so trying to really kind of help think through what some of these solutions might look like. But they also have to learn that Tonga is a, you know, it's, um, Tonga will always be Tonga and there are certain types of mindsets that will take a little more care and you don't just push them into thinking you're like you like uh, you have to kind of be in community with them and we remember what it means to be talking and move into some kind of agreement so there's a lot to unpack still i think for me about what it means to just live here and just keep practicing tongue and speak tongue and uh, 
but that that really is the basis of my art. It's just to really kind of center on that. I think that really helps me kind of wade through what I feel like I'm trying to make art for anyone else, uh, rather than just trying to say what I'm trying to say. a horrible question, but I just think that you can answer it if you want to. Um, I'm ready. It's a question that we ask artists, and I've talked to you about a lot about like this idea of who your audience is, right? Mm. Um, and so I, I'm wondering if I can ask you an experimental question of this idea that you you make art, and we've talked about this before, like who are you making art for? Is it the Tongan American community? Is it um, art, is it white people? Is it everyone? And that, that changes how you're thinking about what you're communicating. So the question I want to ask you is, let's suppose there's three audiences. Um, you have Tongan Americans, right. and then you have white people, right. and then you have other people of color that are not right. Tongan. Because you kind of occupy two places where you're an artist, but you're also working within the community. Yeah. And so in Seattle, let's take Seattle in particular, how would what you would want people to know about your community? Or like if you're talking to your community, what would you want to say? What's the thing that's burning inside of you that you want people to know? Or if you're talking to white people, what do you want them to know? Or people of color that are not Tongan. Or there are certain people that you're like, I don't care, I don't want to talk to you. I'm gonna answer your question by not answering your question. <laughs> well, well, but what I basically it's I'm I'm really gonna reflect on what I recently did again back for um, Seattle Central, and it was essentially the same question because I, I was I was asked to to create an API mural, and I've I've had conversations with Connor before about this about Pacific Islanders really trying to dismantle this API aggregate because it has been very damaging. It's it's useless. In Just a lot for of people listening, we explain what that is and Sorry, why yeah. it's damaging. Yeah. yeah, so the API aggregate has been used, was kind of really a, a term of convenience. Like, oh, Asians and Pacific Islanders are in the same region-ish of the world. Let's lump them together as a census in order to make this easy for us. And there's not that quite that many of them, so it'll be fine. There's maybe a million, million of them or so. And so it quite what was what literally was a measure of convenience for some clerical convenience somewhere became just culturally what has been used overall throughout the United States. And it has been very damaging. It really masks a lot of the issues that Pacific Islanders face that is very much not in line with what some of our East Asian American communities are some of them are thriving, right? Um, not to say that they're not struggling with their own thing. Like when it comes to the stop API hate, I hate that as well because this is an Asian American issue. This is not affecting Pacific Islanders necessarily, right? So, so in a lot of ways, the API aggregate has been very um, harmful. It's it's um, it's directed a lot of funding to Asian American uh, nonprofits that when that, that say they support PI communities. I'll take the money and run off with it somewhere else. I'm not sure, but because there's just more representation. There's just more from representation, the and they and there, there's a more institutional know-how. So if you throw money at a, a group, <clears> it's going <throat> to most of it's going to land within the Asian American community. Yeah, okay. especially if they throw out an API. Gotcha. Right? Yeah, I feel like this yeah. term like was set with good intentions. It's like maybe if we wrap up PI right. into Asian American, right, we can allow more funds to then be funneled there. Right. But that, of course, is not yeah. how funding moves, right? <laughs> anyway, so when I say API, um, that's what I was asked to do for Seattle Center was to create an API mural. 
And um, the guy that, that asked that commissioned it from um, with me is it's a good friend of mine. Um, he's Southeast Asian, and they are another subsect within the Asian American uh, aggregate that is going through its own issues that, that as far as invisibility in, within the API aggregate, right? And so when I was asked to do this this mural, um, I was struggling with it for about. He asked me to do this in May. I told him I'll have it done by July. I, I asked I asked for August to have it done. I did not start on it until August. And this is literally because I was trying to figure out exactly the question you asked me, like, who am I doing this for, right? right? Uh, what do I even paint? Who do I portray in this thing? Am I gonna just throw a bunch of API figures, quote unquote, um, who are, um, notable in the, in the scene of Seattle's history. So there's several, right? There's, I'll say there's Uncle Bob Santos, who's a very prominent Filipino-American um, leader. He's passed away recently. Um, there's Alan Sugiyama, who's a pro, um, civil, civic leader in the Japanese-American community. So there's, I could go on forever. Like, do I just slap a bunch of them on this mural and call it good? Like, this, that would not feel good. And I actually did sketch them all out that way. I, I put them all on this mirror, on this uh, plan on, uh, on the iPad, and uh, it did not feel good at all. Like, I, I mean, I, I, I had trouble just drawing their faces. Right? It, was, it was that difficult for me. So I scrapped the whole thing, and I just started with just, uh, you know what, I'm going to draw someone I love. And I, draw, I drew Leto. So I started with her, I expanded it out to some flowers, like, oh, some flowers. I put some plumeria in there, some chrysanthemum, some paquita, all flowers that happen to be very prominent national quote-unquote flowers to different Asian-American communities. And then I kind of expanded out to what's, what's a pattern, what's a motif from Kingdom of Tana that I absolutely love. And it's this one here on my ring, it's the Amuamokofe. And I put that on the background too. And then it kind of came together from that. So. That's, that's kind of my answer to your question, is I really started with, um, in, in this particular context and case, I started with who I loved. And it was, it was, it was my daughter. And of course, I love my wife as well. But, but in, the, in the moment when I was really just, I do not know what the hell I'm going to draw. So I just started with her, and it kind of built out into what became Manongi, right? Fragrance. And the piece itself, I have come to have no problem explaining to anyone who asked me what it means. It's literally Leto being guided by her ancestors and behind her, looking for fragrance. And the patterns behind her are all meant to kind of represent just the, the strength and the resilience of the communities that she's literally a part of. So that's, that's how I've really come to explain um, doing art in general, I think. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and I'm like getting... I know. <laughs> it was too. such a great answer. I was trying not to let my voice crack there for a second. Oh my gosh. So, thank uh, you for that question. That was, that's great. That's so beautiful. Like, and Leto literally is the embodiment <laughs> of what you were just talking about. Exactly. Like, the relationship between Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. I think so too. And because when you were talking, I was like, oh, I wonder if he's was going to go in this direction of like, you know, just talking strictly about these need to be communities that are talked about separately. Yeah. But then you actually went with like a reconciled like approach of like, we are together. We are seeking this fragrance. Yeah. And there's a bunch of great um, coalitions and relationships built between Asian American 
in Pacific Island communities over when you have us lumped together that long, we're going to have some yeah. great relationships, right? And so um, I think the, the mural itself does represent that as well. I think it, it speaks to the relationships we've built. Um, some of my first mentors in college were Asian Americans, right? So there, I, there's no way I can just like disregard who Asian Americans were in my life. My wife is Asian American. So um, I think, I, think I, I did my best to kind of really address what I thought felt was not necessarily providing an API mural, but rather an honest answer to what I feel like um, I want to talk or speak to about who I love. I was thinking about this audience question, and I've been thinking about my own life, and every artist does. And I think you have such a complicated question to ask, and I just think it's so beautiful how you're coming to understand that. I was reading recently, this author was talking about ancestry, and we often think about our ancestors, and I love how you were talking about that, and how they, what they, what our ancestors left for us. Mm. And then I began to think, what if I thought of myself as an ancestor? Mm. And what if, because I, I began to get in my head about art, and I'm like, what is the point? Like, I could be a blip on the screen, and everything I make is gonna, you know, in like, what, three or four generations don't even remember anything about me. So what's the point? And, and then I started to be like, well, then why should I even make art? But then I thought, man, if I thought about my audience being um, the people that I will be the ancestor to, it, I haven't even really thought through it because it's blown my mind about how much it would change. Like, what do I want to leave behind? And then I started thinking, well, what do I think is getting lost? What do I want to? So I don't know, like, what do you think about that? If you were to think about the fact that you will be an ancestor, yeah. what do you want to leave behind? I like to think this is what pre-Christian Tonga's wisdom was based on. Like they thought like that, right? Um, it was it was always about what are we leaving for those coming after us? Like I could die tomorrow and not care less, but if there's nothing for who I left behind, then what was my life about? Right? So I think that's that's part of what I really want to try and keep um, uh, discerning, kind of really looking into. Um, reading about more about my own particular family's history because there's one there's one branch of my family that I know a lot about and it happens because it happens to be because there's quite good records about it there's there's a clear path to I think I can count back to 15 generations of it yeah there's one tree even that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. <laughs> That's a story for another day. That's amazing. That's a story for another day. But um, again, I think it's it's really about um, thinking exactly the what like the way that you you um, put it, right? It says you are an ancestor to someone at some point, and that's part of how Tongans need, um, used to think in the past. Is you put your past in front of you as the way to move throughout your life and to help inform how you, your actions. Because if you move through it, then, then you know that what you're leaving behind is, will be a future for someone else. Yeah, I mean, even earlier you were talking about how the land was interacted with. It was, if we tend to the land, the, if, what was it? If we Take care of the land and the land will take care of it. Yeah, there's like inherently a generational approach to that. Yeah. Just yeah. that we will be taking care of one another. Yeah, because it, it's a mother now. to us all, right? Yeah. And, and islanders have always thought of land as mother. Like in, the, in, in a lot of our different oral histories, um, land, the personification of land has always been like a mother because it grows things, it, it provides. And so in, in like, for example, in, in Maori culture, it's papatuanuku, and that's, that's mother land. 
And then Sky has always been father. I was thinking too about what you were saying about the artist thing, because we, we just spoke with a, a little group of people at University of Washington last night. And um, one of the, the students asked was like, hey, how do you go about starting a residency or whatnot? And I was just like, well, you just do it. Because I, I kind of get a thing where I'm like, there's all these residencies and like, oh, how do you get in? And you're applying. And, and then suddenly I was like, wait, why can't we just start our own? And there, I think there is this like feeling and myth in the art world that there is an institution and gatekeepers and telling you, and there are, telling yeah. you can and can't do things. But it is this moment of like, wait, why, why do we have to listen to what they're saying? And I, and I think sometimes that feeling of, can I call myself an artist? It's ironic because I think people that don't do any work to create art and make no sacrifice are very, very willing to be like, I'm an artist. Um, but then there's people who are like, are artists and they're working hard, but there's this fear of like, can I actually say I'm an artist? Is this art? And that fear just comes from the people that gatekeep of saying, and I think that comes from insecurity of like, well, if they're an artist, then does that mean I'm not an artist, you know? Yeah. So. And of course, I think I'm also, I, there, I have layers of complexity um, concerning just who I am as a Tongan, mm. right? There's, I'm Tongan, but I'm also like, I'm Tongan Tongan from Tonga. America is home now, but it's it's uh, it's where I've built home for myself and my family. Um, but I still very much think as, as I would have back home. So I speak the language, um, and then there's just do they even think of me as an artist? Like you know, there's there's a community that, that I'm thinking about that I feel like I'm wanting to do this for them. But uh, like, will they appreciate it? Will they even think this is worth the time that any Tongan should be involved? Um, but I, but I think I've, I'm learning more and more. Like actually, yeah, yeah there's, there's there's room for this. How old were you again when you moved? I was time? 14 when I left Tonga. Okay. So my mom, she was 36 actually at the time when we left uh, the kingdom. So we picked up and left, came out here in June 1997. She got married in July, and it's been home ever since here in the Northwest. And I think that's one thing we talked a lot about. While we were in the residency with you, yeah. was who is your audience? And I think I think actually for you, it's been pretty clear this whole time, which yeah. is really interesting. And I think what's been really exciting to watch what you've done since the residency with Pikawa and starting your own residency with PI mm -hmm. artists. Um, it's really exciting seeing what it means for you as a Tongan. I don't know. Would you say Tongan elder? Is that like? Uh, I don't know that I'm Tongan elder, but I think I have a particularly strong voice, I think, in our, in our community. Yeah, because I know we, we've at least talked about, like, your role with young people in particular, yeah. that at least you have this, like, mentoring role. But, like, young men, young Tongan PI men are very important to you. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, and I, I'm, I'm particularly thinking about American-born Tongans, and uh, and uh, because my, my daughter is, well, as well, right? So she's, uh, my wife is Japanese-American, third and fourth generation. And so my daughter will be fifth generation on her grandmother's side and fourth Yonsei on her, on her grandfather's side. And then of course Tongan on top of that. And her first language is English. And she doesn't speak a lick of Japanese, doesn't speak a lick of um, Tongan. Although she'll sing a few nursery rhymes here and there, right? So I'm constantly thinking about the generations born here because they're the ones you have to carry this after, after we're gone. I'm, I'm lucky to be able to speak 
think Tongan and all these other things, but like I, I know that's not the world my daughter lives in, and it's not the world a lot of these young men, these young women who are born here live in. Right. Um, so I'm constantly trying to think of what value does this thing Tongan have for them here um, in the Northwest and in the um, United States. What is, how does it change when they go to California? How does it change when they go clear across the country to New York? So. Yeah. Yeah. So this idea of like belonging and yeah. home right. seems quite like a, like a big deal for you and for definitely like your community. So for you, how have you navigated that question moving from the kingdom to the Seattle area? And you said you do call Seattle home now. So yeah. what was that like for you? I mean, it's it's been a journey and it's a constant, um, it's a constant one, right? It's, uh, I remember, I've written about this just as, as journaling and just kind of thinking through what my journey has been like, but I remember the feeling of being here initially in 97 and immediately being confronted by the fact that there's nothing like me here, right? There's no Tongans, or at least like looking around, there's nothing, these trees, you don't find any of these trees here in, in the islands, right? Like someone said, we're going to the beach here. <laughs> Went to the beach, like, this ain't no damn beach. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even, even for me on the other side of the States, I felt that way when people talk about the beach here. I'm like, there's grass. How dare yeah. you call this brown rock beach? Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but, but you know, there's this just, there's just the, the sheer confrontation of everything visual, yeah. the, the sense, the, the smells of the place, just everything is not Tonga. Um, the people even. Oh, really fast. How does that, I love how you said that, like just the visual, yeah. like how does that affect you as an artist? That you are in a place where the visuals are I mean, just so different than where you grew up. The arts for Tongans is very much about the senses too, right? And so especially the sense of smell. If you if you look at a lot of our poetry, our, our music, there's always references to finding certain fragrances. There's a com comparison of uh, a beautiful thing that happened and they, they, they put a flower's fragrance on that. Or there's a reference to the royal family and there's a different flower reference to that. So the senses very much are part of who we are. And so that's, that's part of what I am, of what I bring um, in my practice is how do I engage those senses or how do I visually portray those senses, right? And so as, as far as just like the senses as an artist, it's, um, it's, it was quite jarring. Uh, I think I really had to kind of acclimate myself. And so in those early years, I remember looking through my yearbook and just like all the, what I used to wear, how I used to talk, right? It was very, very much trying to find out who I am um, in that space. And uh, really kind of tracking that all the way to who I am today. I think it's just a slow journey of coming back. Oh wait, I've, I've been here all along. Um, but not to say that I'm not, I'm not grateful for having gone through some of those journeys, those um, side missions, I guess. Um, okay, so I'm, I love how you're talking about the way sound is used. I mean, smell in particular is used. How, what is that, do you engage that in your practice? I haven't, um, but I'm trying to visually think of what that might look like, smell, right? Um, and I'm trying to use some of the motifs from um, the, t the kingdom. So a lot of motifs that we have in our natu, our bark cloth fabrics. Uh, how, how might that represent what uh, fragrant might 
fragrance might look on a flower as it's emanating. So as I'm, I'm trying to think through those things in a way that visually kind of make, uh, is recognized by someone who knows that culture, like Pretzitongans. And then as they look at it and someone's, they, I don't know. So I'm trying to think through that and it's, I've explored that a little bit in my most recent um, installation over at Seattle Central. And it's literally called Manongi, which means fragrance. Yeah, so that's, um, so I was trying to explore that a little bit here. And I think I want to keep doing that moving forward. Um, I, I think a lot about smell in my work and I've never tried to engage smell mm. in any way, but I thought about it because I do a lot of work on memory. Mm. And smell is so connected to memory. That's exactly why Tonga's thinking. Okay, yeah. and so, I, so I'm really interested in this idea, and I've thought about, like, what would it be like to create a, an installation that has, like, like there, art has, in, in the Western world and in the U.S., it's engaged all of your senses in different ways, but you rarely see smell engaged. Mm. And so I've often thought, and I've never done it, but I'm like, what would it be like, and I... I don't know. So I just really intrigued what you're saying of like creating an installation that incorporates smell mm. in some way that's triggering memory. Yeah. I don't know. I have no idea, but I just think it's really fascinating. <laughs> and just like every single time I talk to you, which is why I was so excited about having you on here, is I think the way that you think, especially when you bring in different Tongan language or in like in culture, it's just so fascinating how we get. Um, I, I just think there's so much to learn. Like not just like even how you're bringing the smell and I'm like, oh, this is so great. I think about this all the time and you never hear about smell in the art world. Well, so, so one thing I had, a question I had about the smell in particular is we've talked a lot about tapa as a material that you, have you, have you worked with tapa in particular? Um, I have, I actually brought some to okay. the residency. Okay, um, that's right. And I was, I was trying to work it out. Then the pandemic happened and then I, I dropped it. Yeah, well, so I ask, <laughs> is there a smell when you work with tapa? There is a smell that Tapa has. And I'm it's, curious because yeah. when we've talked before, you also had mentioned that, is it, was it the Hawaiian artist that, was she the one that's trying to make Tapa from local trees as opposed to trees from the islands? And I'm I, curious, does that change the smell hmm. and how would that change? Yeah. I've actually never thought of that, but I think it was more just a, a matter of access to the materials for her. Um, I know they were using a cousin of the mulberry tree, which is what's used back home in the islands. It's a, it's a mulberry, mulberry paper tree bark. So it's a rather skinny, like six foot, seven foot tree. And um, there's a cousin of it somewhere here that grows here naturally in the Northwest. And I, and I believe that's what they've been using out here quite often. In addition to, I think, just getting some from Hawaii. I think there's still some there. It's interesting, I've actually talked to some cousins um, who've been home recently, back in Tonga, like pre-pandemic, right? And they say, they're saying that um, the mulberry trees in Tonga are like thinning out too. Like those trees are like starting to disappear. So there's more and more tapa nowadays that's, that's lined with the, um, like a very paper-like substance that usually goes in between comforters, right? So I think some Tongans are using that to like back actual tapa instead of double backing tapa with tapa because that'll make it more valuable in Tonga. But anyways, yeah, there's just, there's other innovations that Tongans are going for just because of the, the lack of resource. Um, can we talk a little bit about just like on a, a bigger scale, because I'm just fascinated by this idea that you live in a different place where smells are different. Right. And that, how that affects the way that you're thinking and experiencing the world. 
and I, so I used to work at World Relief and I worked with our anti-human trafficking program, but I worked in the same office with the refugee resettlement program. And one of the things I always think about that has always struck me is how smell is handled differently in different cultures. And so one of the biggest things that was so difficult to handle is because when refugees come to the States, they're under like U.S. mandates. Like you have to have a job by this time. You have to learn English. Like you can't just in order to pay back the money that the U.S. gave them essentially. And one of the things is to get a job. And so they come over here and they're often put in these jobs that are so beneath them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know you know this. Many people actually don't know the story about re- how, what refugees go through in the States. But one of the things that was really hard was oftentimes we, our case managers, would get calls from employers and be like, we need you to talk to our employee um, and tell them they have poor deodorant. And it was just this really interesting thing of like... It, how do you have a conversation with someone that comes, and it was different from different countries, right. to say like, your smell is bad. Yeah. Coming from a place where like, and I would never been aware of how much we cover up our body smells with smells that are dissonant, yeah. and that we've deemed it bad. And yeah. so those conversations, I heard them happen and they just always sucked. And the yeah. case managers hated it. Cause they were like, in order for me to explain to them, they have to wear another smell. Yeah. I first have to convince them their body smells bad. Yeah. And they're coming from a place where they don't believe that. Right. Um, and so, I don't know, what do you think, how's the body handled and smell from the body handled in Tonga <laughs> versus here? You know, it's funny. That's one of the things that um, Islanders, I think, believed about about settlers when they came over to the island, they all smelled bad. We, we, we doused ourselves in like oils and um, coconut oils, all these fragrant flowers. So we, yeah. we knew how to smell good. We knew how to you know, bathe and um, early white settlers when they landed on our shores, that wasn't quite a thing for them yet. Um, so, that's, so that's something that still echoes in, in Tongans today. Like smelling good is part of respecting the people that you're with. Um, you know your your physical getup, how you look physically. Um, it's all part of what Tongans have. Um, actually, I'll say it's Queen Salote of the third. Uh, from the, she reigned through the 40s, 50s, and 60s, but she she kind of uh, organized five Tongan values into a very like digestible thing for Tongans to kind of teach and, and understand and and part of it includes the way you dress how you present yourself um, and you know I, I believe this part of that is, is probably a European um, a little bit of a European um, influence but there are echoes of who we were pre-Christian in there particularly around smell and so smell again is, is really important for how you present yourself especially in front of dignitaries you don't just walk up to them and not smelling your best. So you put on some coconut oil or something to kind of cover up your musk or whatever. But also, you're, and even what you're hearing, you're saying about what you're, what was being used to cover up smell is still yeah. related to nature. Yeah, def- definitely. Yeah. Right? Um, and that's why everything nature provided is a metaphor for everything good in our lives for Thomas. my alternative sign off. Oh, I know that you're Catholic and you would be a, have to be a priest. So anyways, I was sitting there, I was like, man, I wish Shoko would start church. I'd be a member. It's funny, I mean, might joke about this, but early on in our pre-meeting each other lives, you know, I was really kind of 
I had like maybe a few girlfriends that didn't work out and I was like, maybe priesthood is my calling. Ah. And on the same <laughs> parallel, same universe that Miley's in, uh, Miley was like going on these mission trips to the Mississippi Delta that was organized by a convent. And so like, maybe my colleague is in the comment. Oh, no way. <laughs> and then wild. we met each other, and then that all flew out the window. The, the intervention of God to keep you, to it's meet like, uh, before you psych. did that. That's amazing. Awesome. Uh, thanks, Toka. Yeah. Guys, thank you. Thank you for having me. Let us know what you think and join the conversation at interloperinterloper.com slash podcast, where you can leave us a comment, ask a question, or tell us what we missed or need to go deeper with. Interloper's vision is putting money into the hands of artists, saying the things we aren't supposed to say. If you'd like to support artists or this podcast, go to interloperinterloper.com slash funders to find out ways you can help increase creativity and conversation. Finally, we release the podcasts, new exhibition series, and more on the 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. The 29th of each month. So set your calendars and follow us on Instagram at interloper underscore unlicensed to find out what's next. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Interloper is a project of the Milkshake Club, which is powered by Shenpike. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Connor Walden and Tiffany Danielle Elliott. The song you heard on the podcast today is Lofi en la Fila de la Totiria by Palma Sur. Of course all the food stuff flies, just flies over. It's because Bill Gates is over there. <laughs> Literally, you can see his house from here. Oh my gosh. I once saw a submarine out here. Wow. And then disappear <laughs> under the water in the direction of Bill Gates. Oh, someone's <laughs> It was like five in the morning and no one was out here. I thought it was a tugboat. And I was like looking closer. It was like literally right oh here. Oh my gosh. That's, and I was like, that's, creepy. that's a Isn't submarine. That she saw us. Shoot. <laughs> but my friend works for the locks. Cause it's the only way to get in here is through the locks. Uh, and I, I was like, can a submarine? She's like, no. So what there was, the was and, there, and I've been, I've looked on like the registry because you have to, you have to, even if it's a private submarine, you have to register. It was did Is not there appear. There's private submarines. Yeah. <laughs> I want. That's military vessel. Something. But it's know. something that lives here because <laughs> I can't get out. It was the Loch Ness monster. The Loch Ness submarine.